You are listening to The Gateway Church, located in Ferrisburg, Michigan. You can learn more about us by visiting thegateway.church or like and follow us on Facebook, where you can watch full services, keep up with all that is going on, and get connected. And yes, we are talking about Exodus 20, and if you are familiar with scripture, you know that Exodus 20 is where the Ten Commandments are found. Um, And if you know anything about me, I hate rules. With a burning passion, rules are the bane of my existence. I'm very much a, like, prove that this rule matters, really convince me of that, and then I will consider following it. Uh, So of all the passages passages of scripture and all the things for me to talk about, I think the Lord was probably trying to say something when I was assigned this passage. Not ironic, it was probably intentional. Um, But as I was reading it, and I'm certain that you guys have all heard, that's too bold of a statement, I'm sure a lot of you people who have been in church for a while have heard sermons about the Ten Commandments and following rules and all these things, and even just church in general has this stigma of like, when you say yes to God, you're saying no to all of the things that you enjoy. Um, That's not what it's about. And even in when I was going through Exodus 20, the big thing that kept coming up for me is seeing God's heart in it. So this, I'm hoping, is a new message on the Ten Commandments for you guys. This was new to me as I was going through it, but this will probably look different than most of the messages that you've heard on Exodus 20, and I hope that that's a good thing, and I hope that that's true. Maybe you've heard this exact message, and it really was the Lord. Um, but all that being said, we're going to just jump right into it. Before I do that, I'm going to just pray, because uh, Lord knows I need it. Lord, I just thank you for the opportunity to share what you've put on my heart Would you just help me to communicate clearly in a way that is true to what you're saying um, in this passage of scripture and true to what you're saying to us right now? Help us to listen and be receptive uh, to where you're leading us and help me to not tell too many side stories. Amen. So Exodus 20, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, and if you don't want to turn there in your Bibles, it'll be on the screen in just a moment. But the very first thing that I observe when reading Exodus 20 is that relationships precede rules, meaning relationships come first. So Exodus 20, 1 and 2 says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So right off the bat, establishes this is who I am. Before I give you a set of rules, I'm telling you who I am, who I've been to you, establishing that we have a relationship together, and that really, really matters, and that comes first. Andy Stanley is a preacher, and he uh, preached a sermon on this, as most preachers do, but explained that there's two different types of rules and relationships Uh, The first is like a country club where you say yes to a set of terms and rules and structure, and then you're in relationship. And then there's parenting, and in theory, all other relationships fit into this other category where you are in relationship, and because you are in relationship, there is a set of rules. And that demonstrates care and love for the person uh, that there are rules for. He gives the example of like, You don't call or knock on your neighbor's door and ask to speak with their child to make sure that they brushed their teeth and did their homework before bed because there's no relationship there. You do that with your own child because there is a relationship, and in that relationship, there are guidelines, there are rules, there is structure, and that's a good thing. So in all of that, in that very first couple verses, we see that God leads with relationship. 
because his heart is for us. That that's a good thing that there is a relationship established and in that comes rules. And then the very next couple of verses is Exodus 3 through 17, which was really, really long and wordy. Uh, so I gave you guys the um, PRV, the Pastor Rachel version, uh, which is the condensed version of the Ten Commandments. So you can look at your Bible, but it would be a little uh, hard to follow along. So if you want to just look at the screen, that's totally fine. In these couple verses, we see um, the big, like the big ten, which is no other gods before me. Don't make idols. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Honor your parents. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't covet. So lots of don'ts. Here's all the things that you shouldn't do. And this is where we get this idea of like, man, Christianity is so complicated and boring and lame and it's just this big set of rules that you're supposed to follow. But the reality is these rules speak to design. Everything comes with a set of instructions. I'm very much the, give me the Ikea furniture. I don't need the instructions. They're not even in English anyways. I will figure out how to assemble this thing and about halfway through when I stand it up and it's tilted just a little bit and I realize I did something wrong, I need to go find the instructions. They're in the box that I threw away, but I go find them and I undo things and we redo it and we put it all back together and then it's correct. And I'm sure there's a lot of you that's like, well, just use the rules in the first place and you would have saved a half hour or longer. Um, that's not the way that I was wired. I like to just figure it out. But the reality is everything comes with instructions and it works best when you use the instructions. And even more than that, when we use things incorrectly, they break. My mind goes to can openers. And if anyone is left-handed in this room and you don't have an electric can opener, you understand. Because when you put a can opener in your right hand, the blade is on top and it goes into the can and it twists around and then it comes off and you enjoy your soup or whatever it is, but if you're left-handed, when you put it in your hand, the blade is on the bottom, going into the like side of the can, and then you don't open the can, the can is broken, your can opener is broken, and you're angry and hungry. And this is where my mind goes to when I think of like, can openers need to be used correctly, or it's just an absolute pain. Everything breaks when we use things incorrectly, and people are not an exception to that rule. When people um, live a life, and incorrectly is probably not the right word, but outside of design, brokenness is the response. Um, lost my spot. Sometimes you just acknowledge it, so then it's less awkward when you're looking for it. Um, so when I see the Ten Commandments, even though there's so much to pull from there about how we were designed and why, and we could spend so much time talking about that, the big idea is that God was intentional with our design because his heart is for us. And then we see how the Israelites respond to this in chapter, or in verse 18 and 19. The big thing that I notice there is that doubt invites distance. And then that same distance invites more doubt, which invites more distance, which invites more doubt. And it turns into this really vicious cycle. And as a side note, doubt is okay. You are allowed to have questions when you don't understand something. You are allowed to ask. But it is a risky place to be. The disciple, or not the disciples, the Israelites... Uh, this is where we see them with that. So in verse 18 and 19, it says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpets and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. 
the Israelites didn't doubt God's power, but they doubted his heart. And because of that, they stepped back. They were scared. And I think of um, Reagan Vaso, Pastor Ben and Jessica's daughter, is notorious for hiding around a door when, so when you come into something. Her goal is to scare you. Um, so I got into the habit of any time we went over to their house, I would like peer around the corner uh, and just like wait for her to jump out. Uh, and then she stopped doing it because it wasn't as fun. But the reality is like when someone jumps and like scares us, we step back. We don't like jump towards them. Like our natural gut response is to take a step back when we are afraid or when we doubt. And the Israelites, that's exactly what they did because they were afraid of God and they doubted who he was, uh, not necessarily his power, but his heart for them. So we move away from things that we don't trust. And even in kids' church last week, we were talking about how God is powerful, but through the rest of this month, we were talking about God's heart. Uh, And if we don't understand his heart, him being powerful is like this big, terrifying thing. Um, So we see in these two verses that, oh, I forgot this point. Let's talk about that. That's important. Uh, Initially, I was like, okay, so in these two verses, we understand that, like, God is actively pursuing us because it's hardest for us. Even when we're, like, moving away from God, he is coming towards us. But it's even uh, more intimate than that. Even when we are moving away from God, he is still with us. We can't move away from God. Um, So he's not, like, trying to catch up to us, hoping that we'll slow down and, like, stop. He is with us even as we are actively moving away from him. So we see that God is with us because his heart is for us. And then verse 20, I think, is one of the most interesting in this chapter. And the big idea here is that we can either fear God or be afraid of God. And it says, Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, and the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. So in the same breath, Moses is saying, don't fear, fear God. And you're like, what, is, what are you trying to say, Moses? Like, am I supposed to fear or am I not supposed to fear? And what I see is that our English translation doesn't quite do this justice because fear is a real thing um, and they were genuinely afraid. But when he's talking about fearing God, it refers more to reverence. And I was like, yeah, okay, reverence. I know what that means. And I was like, do I know what reverence means? So I hopped on Google like we do. Um, And it talked about reverence coming from this place of like deep respect and to respect something is to deeply admire it. And I think we find uh, reverence in the tension of that, like deep respect and deep admiration. Um, That's what God is uh, getting at here is that you don't need to be afraid of God, but when you understand his heart, there is this admiration that leads to respect. And I see the difference between fear and reverence in these two different relationships in my life. The first is with Patty from Financial Aid. Uh, She works at the main campus, so I've never actually like met her in person. It's always just emails and phone calls um, when I was in college. And if anyone has ever dealt with FAFSA and comes from a like interesting family dynamic, um, you might understand what I say when I got selected for verification, meaning my financial situation was very complicated and ended up being pretty favorable for me, meaning like getting a decent um, Pell Grant. And they're like, that doesn't seem right. Those numbers look off. We better like verify all of that. So we're going to need her parents' tax information and all of this. But the reality is like, I was like, I can't provide my parents' tax information. That's why we're in this situation in the first place. Um, this huge big mess. And Patty seemed skeptical of me, didn't seem like she believed what I was saying. 
Um, and like her job is to make sure that all of these things are right and done correctly. Um, and frankly, I was terrified of Patty because she has a lot of power and she didn't seem like she wanted to be my friend. Um, and one day I just had to call her. So I pick up the phone, literally checked to make sure that the number was correct like four times and it rang and it rang and it rang and finally went to voicemail. And I literally was like, hi, Rachel, this is Patty and, um, end phone call. Um, <laughs> uh, long story short, it did work out. Praise God, made it through college, barely took a couple extra years, but we worked it all out. Uh, but that was like, that was the epitome of fear for me was Patty from financial aid. Um, but when I think of reverence, I think more about my youngest sister, Grace. When you guys go on a vacation, I think that this is a normal thing that most people do, but like your home is like clean and orderly before you go because you want to come back to a clean place. And if you have small children, I understand that's probably not a realistic expectation, but I like coming home to a clean home. Um, and on top of it, I'm very particular about the way I make my bed. The, like everything is perfectly straight. The patterned pillows go a certain direction in a certain order. Um, the corners are tucked with the right like 45 degree angle. It is, it is like a science. Um, I probably spend too much time on that. But my youngest sister understood that that's something that I value. And she knew that there is no way she could make my bed to the standard that I make my bed. And there was a situation where she ended up staying an extra night at my house before, or, well, I had already like gone out of town. And because she admires me and respects me and wants to serve me, she literally slept on the floor because she didn't want to ruin my bed. And I was like, Ugh. and like she could have absolutely slept in my bed and it would have been completely fine. Um, but because she saw an opportunity to just express that she loves and cares about me because she comes from a place of admiration and respect. Um, she slept on the floor and like, and she's like young and agile and it's less of a big deal when you're young, but still, I like sleeping in beds, most people do, I think. Um, but that's the difference between fear, like when it says fear God and being afraid of God, is there is um, an understanding of the heart of that person. So in this verse, we see that God displays his holiness because his heart is for us. He lets us know that he is worthy of admiration and respect. Um, and we see that demonstrated in his holiness. And then in verse 22 and 23, the big thing that I noticed there is that we are ignorant and arrogant. And I would probably even add destructive in all of that. Um, we see these verses say, And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourself that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make yourselves gods of gold. So God is acknowledging idols again for the second time in this chapter. That's really the only thing that he repeats is like, Please stop making idols. Like it is not that hard Actually, it is kind of that hard, which is why he's still talking about it. And even a real experience with him, he said, you saw for yourself that I showed up for you guys and you're still making idols because we are arrogant and we are ignorant. And I could talk about all of the idols that I currently have in my life, all of the idols that I've dealt with in my life, but there's one specifically that comes up and comes up most frequently when I'm driving and that is that I idolize my own judgment and my own abilities. 
I detest stopping at like coming to a complete stop at stop signs. Um, I and even to the point where I've like justified it in my head, told myself like, well, I'm being harder on my vehicle, so I'm not being a good steward of that. If we just like come, we stop a little bit, we look around, and we keep going. Like I am doing, I'm being a good steward, Lord. I don't have to come to a complete stop. But the reality is, like, that is arrogance. That is arrogance through and through because those laws matter because the consequence of them can be incredibly destructive. Every single traffic law matters, and we are supposed to follow them, and I don't do a great job of that. And it comes out of a place of arrogance and ignorance because I have never personally experienced the consequences of not following those laws uh, correctly. And even so, I, as I was driving the other day, thinking about illustrations for this sermon, um, I, you know how you have to like go north to come south because of all the bridge work and stuff, um, and there's that little stop sign, and I was like, there's no one here, it is like after 10 p.m., I would see a car because they would have their lights on, so I just like s- slow down, and you look around, and then you go, and uh, next thing I knew, there's a police officer behind me, and it's like, cool, <laughs> great. Um, and he comes to my car, and it's like this young guy, and I was like, awesome, he's got something to prove, I'm not getting out of this ticket, this stinks, and I genuinely thought to myself, Rachel, this is the time to cry and get out of a ticket, Um, and I would love to tell you that I control when I cry, and I could just muster that up, but that is absolutely false, I'm not capable of doing that, for any of you guys who have figured that out, that's either incredible or terrifying, I'm not sure, Um, but I couldn't, I broke the law, and that was evident, and I got caught, and was about to experience the consequences of that, which would have just been in the form of a ticket, instead of something like absolutely devastating. I did get out of the ticket, so avoided the consequences, yet again, uh, just re-establishing that like, I know what I'm doing, and my own judgment is better than trusting in the law, and blah, 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 um, to the point where I got home, and on my, when I leave my apartment, there are three stop signs within a like, 0.1 mile span. I did not stop at a single one of them. Um, and I'm like, at what point am I gonna learn this lesson? That like, I, my own judgment, like I value that more than trusting that there's a law designed to keep me safe. Like when am I gonna figure that one out? And the reality is it's either I'm gonna let God deal with me now, or I'm going to do, like, deal with that when the consequences of it are detrimental. Um, so we're going to deal with that now. Uh, that's the goal. Um, in all of that, in understanding that we are just like bent towards sin and creating idols and being arrogant and being ignorant, uh, we see that God can handle our sin because his heart is for us which is incredibly gracious, and I'm just so thankful for that, that even in our sin, God is still actively pursuing us, um, choosing to be with us, and dealing with us. But sin shifts our understanding of God. And we see this all over in culture, in the world, um, in relationship with each other, that when we are sinful, it taints the way we see and understand God. One of the big examples that um, I've noticed lately is in the way we talk about health and wellness and like being fit in our bodies. Um, We live in a world that says you need to look this specific way. And if you don't, you just need to work really, really hard until you look the way that you're supposed to look. And that is not who God is. Like we were designed to look different because God is saying something really big about who he is through the differences that we have. 
but because we live in a culture that is so incredibly broken and so fixated on looking the part, we tend to idolize that. And I was literally listening to worship music, and this song showed up on my Spotify, um, which felt very out of the blue, but it uh, reminded me of this idea that when we uh, buy into the sinfulness of the world that we live in, it taints the way we understand God um, to the point where we doubt who he is and if he's for us and all of those things. So I'm going to read uh, just a few parts of this song for you guys, and it should be up on the screen. It says, do you ever see someone and think, wow, God must hate me because he spent so much time on them and for me he got lazy, got man- ample mental illness, personality flaws, while their only flaw seems to be that they have none at all. Do you ever see someone and think, wow, God must hate me? And I'll let him take accountability for everything that's wrong with me. Can't hold myself responsible, so I'll blame the metaphysical. If Jesus died for all our sins, he left one behind, the body I'm in. Same hands that made the moon and the stars got carpal tunnel and forgot some parts. I don't know what I believe, but it's easier to think he made a mistake with me. This is this artist's top song. Of every song that she's created, this is the one that people most resonate with. It has over 31 million streams, meaning millions of people are saying, yeah, I agree with that. I doubt the way God feels about me because I don't look like the way I'm supposed to look. And it's because we live in a culture that idolizes um, appearance and fitness and health and well-being. And we Because of that, the consequence is misunderstanding God, and it leads to a life outside of design. And this isn't just something that women experience. We all are living in bodies, meaning we are all susceptible to doubting that God made us good. But I saw a statistic the other day that says 9 of 10 women risk their health in pursuit of a weight goal. This is a really big deal. And I could preach a whole sermon on this, but the reality is when we buy in to sin the consequence is misunderstanding God. And that isn't just a consequence for me. That This specifically is a consequence for our entire culture. And with things like social media, this is affecting kids younger and younger and younger. And it is, I cannot tell you how many conversations I've overheard in kids' church about little girls complaining about their bodies. And I'm going to stop or I'm going to cry, but this is a big deal. And the reality is, This is just one thing of many, many things that are a really big deal, that are incredibly destructive, that are a result of sin. And parents, this is important for you guys. You shift the way your kids see God. This is a huge responsibility, and I'm thankful that the expectation isn't for you to do it perfectly. And because of that, we have community. When you get your kids involved in youth group, when you get them here on Sundays, when you yourself are in relationship with other uh, Christ-following people, they get to say something about who God is to your kids as well. So for the things that you lack, other people can make up for, and it encourages your kids to seek the God who, that, who all of those people are demonstrating. That's really, really important. But this isn't just for parents. That responsibility is for everyone. We are all saying something about who God is. And when we are living in sin, we are are creating a misunderstanding of who God is. It's a really, really big deal. And the reality is sin impacts all of us. 
I am full of sin, you are full of sin, and we live in a world that has been dramatically impacted by sin. And so there's things like natural disasters and freak accidents that are also tainting the way that we understand who God is. So things like sexuality, things like our desire to strive and perform and earn things, how we handle wealth, how we handle power, what we worship is all affected by sin. And the result of that is things like abuse, freak accidents, loss, betrayal, emotional wounds. And even though God is gracious with us, God doesn't overlook sin because he cares about us knowing his heart. He is willing to deal with it because it really, really matters. Sin impacts the way we understand who God is. And I am so thankful because God is more gracious than I am sinful. Even though I am completely sinful, God is even more completely gracious. And the gospel is the perfect example of that. When the Father sent the Son to pay the consequence on my behalf, even though he didn't earn or deserve the consequence of death for any, he never committed any sin, I did. And I deserve to pay that. That is the perfect example of understanding how God is more gracious than I am sinful. I was reading this book. It's called um, Gentle and Lowly. And it's called that because it talks about the heart of, the heart of Christ for us. Um, and the only time Jesus def- like describes himself in all of scripture, it says that he's gentle and lowly. And I'm going to share an excerpt from that book later. But one of the quotes that really jumped out to me is that um, Christ sides with us against sin, not against us because of sin. He can handle your sin. He's not surprised or concerned or frightened by the things that you've done. He was completely aware of it. And while you were an enemy of Christ, he said, they're worth it. And on top of that, it's not just the gospel is the fact that Jesus is still advocating for us. There's a verse in scripture that talks about how Jesus is our advocate. And oftentimes we hear sermons preached about how he's advocating for us to get the promotion, to get the bigger house, to finally make it into the middle class and break the um, systems of poverty that we've experienced. That's not what that verse is talking about. It says, because of sin, Jesus is our advocate. Meaning there are conversations between God the Father and God the Son on my behalf discussing my sinfulness. And can you imagine being in the room for those conversations? Hearing someone articulate even more in a, more, in a deeper way my sin than even I understand. Like when I look and really like see and feel the weight of my sin, it's like overwhelming sometimes. But the God who created me knows even deeper the pain and the consequences of those, the, those sins. And Christ is still saying, I died for that sin too. Your response, God, is graciousness, even though she deserves judgment. Because of what I did, grace is the way that we get to respond. And it's not that he's arguing with God about it. God is actively saying, I get to give grace, even though judgment is the response. And I am so thankful He sent Jesus so he could say that for us. This wasn't Jesus versus God. This was Jesus and God the Father together, making a way for me, even though I'm sinful. From that same book, there was this line that says, "Uh, we are declared right with God, not once we begin to get our act together, but once we collapse into honest acknowledgement that we never will. The gospel doesn't need your help. 
It is completely good by itself. And on top of that, Jesus is still advocating on your behalf. God can handle your sin. The gospel exists because God's heart is for you. Not because there was this big problem and Jesus didn't, or God didn't know what to do. God said, I care so deeply about the people that I created that I am going to make it as easy as possible for them to be in relationship with me. And that meant sending Jesus. So the whole point of everything I'm saying about Exodus 20, even about the book of Exodus, the Bible as a whole, and the reason we exist is that we exist to experience God's heart. And for a long time, I thought that that meant just understanding God's heart. But it is so much deeper than that. There is a real felt experience of the way God feels about you that is available to you. And I didn't have a good example of this until yesterday. I was at the birthday party of a three-year-old whom I dearly love. um, And while we were singing happy birthday to her, there was probably... Uh, 15 to 30 people surrounding her, looking at her with just like joy and love on their faces as we were singing. Um, she like was just so overwhelmed with emotion that she like burst into laughter and her eyes got watery and she almost cried. And it was just this realization of like what I see on her face is felt love. There was an experience that she felt on the inside that had an outward uh, expression. That is the love of God that I'm talking about. That is the heart that we get to experience, and that is the depth that we get to experience it. It's not just something that you have to be okay with understanding. It is a real thing available for you to experience. And the way to God's heart is rest. We hear stuff like the Ten Commandments. We're like, all right, follow the rules. Even if it's rest, it's rest and obedience, and it's not, it's rest. The way to God's heart is rest. And we hear sermons about the Sabbath, and those things are really, really good, creating healthy rhythms of um, not, like, overworking yourself. I remember being a kid, and was uh, my understanding of the Sabbath was that you had to take a nap on Sunday. And I was like, this is dumb. I hate this, and I'm not going to do that, uh, because not a rule follower, as we all know. Um, But it is so much bigger than that. It's bigger than just having a day off in your week where you're not working or you're prioritizing family. Rest is so much bigger than that. And I was talking with a professor at the college that I went to uh, about all of this, and he explained to me uh, just how rest was established in creation is all the way through scripture and comes to its like fullest point when Christ returns. Because when Christ returns, we get to be with him. We are completely whole, uh, and there's no more work to be done. We get to rest when Christ returns. And that doesn't mean hustle until he returns. We rest in faith now as a reminder of what's to come. So he explained it more like communion, where we are believing that this is what God did, and we are remembering what he did, and we are celebrating what is going to come. That is what rest is. I lost my spot. Yeah, so rest is sitting in the presence of God without an agenda. Rest is being physically still long enough for our minds to be still. And that doesn't mean fighting against all of the thoughts that come up, but it's being present with God long enough for them to settle. So it's not going to God and saying, all right, Lord, Pastor Rachel talked about rest and talked about being still in your presence and not having an agenda. So I'm going to sit here and I'm going to push aside all of the things on my mind and just focus on you. That's not what it is. You get to come to God 
and just be whatever you are in that moment and eventually in the presence of God, those things settle. Rest is realigning yourself with Christ, making room for him to teach you, disciple you, and deal with you. Those things that come up might be indicating something really big going on in your life, might be pointing to some areas that you need to surrender, might be pointing to some idols in your life, things that you have prioritized over God, and that is the space that he deals with those. It's in those moments of rest that God deals with us and disciples us. And not only is the way to God's heart rest, the response to God's heart is rest. One of my favorite verses is Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. This has been pretty pivotal for me in the last couple years. It says, Come to me, all who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your soul. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. We get to show up in the presence of God, weary, broken, overwhelmed, scared, concerned, doubtful, and we leave rested. And it's not just this like peace about knowing that God is in control and God is for me. Our souls get to rest in the fact that God loved us so much that he gave us an advocate advocating for our sins. He sent the Holy Spirit to be with us in the closest way that we can be with God here on this side of eternity. We get to rest. And when we learn God's heart, the response is rest. And not just that, but that product, the product of that rest is reverence and then righteousness. So for everyone who is like, okay, Ten Commandments, this is going to be a rules sermon, and they're going to straighten me out, and they're, more importantly, they're going to straighten my spouse out, and they're going to leave, and it's just going to be so much better. It is about rules, yes, those do matter. Um, that is worth acknowledging, but they come from reverence, and that reverence is established in rest. A holy life flows from experiences of God's heart. Holy lives and moral lives look remarkably similar. One, comes, one flows from God's heart, while the other is for God's heart. And there's probably a lot of people in this room who are like, yeah, I am, generally speaking, following the principles established in the Ten Commandments, my life looks pretty good. When sin comes up, I deal with it. But there is a difference between a moral life and a holy life. And that comes with the motivation behind it. So often we feel like we have something to prove, or we have something to earn, or we have something to repay. And that is not the case. Um, from that same book that I was talking about, I want to read an excerpt. Um, and it's a little bit longer, so bear with me. It will be on the screen, so if you're like, I can't focus for more than three and a half seconds at a time, follow along. That might help. Um, but the reality is we are so bent on striving and earning salvation and making sure that even if we're not trying to earn salvation, we're at least repaying God by living an obedient life. And that is not the case. And I think uh, this author, his name's Dane Ortland, said it much better than I'm saying it now, so I'm going to read what he said. There is an entire physiological substructure that due to the fall is a near constant manufacturing of relational leveraging, fear stuffing, nervousness, scorekeeping, neurotic controlling, anxiety festering silliness that is not something we say or even think so much as something we exhale. 
You can smell it on people, though some of us are, better, are good at hiding it. And if you trace this fountain of scurrying haste in all its various manifestations down to its roots, you don't find childhood difficulties or a Myers-Briggs diagnosis or Freudian impulses. You find a gospel deficit. You find a lack of felt awareness of Christ's heart. All the worrying and dysfunction and resentment are the natural fruit of living in a mental universe of law. The felt love of Christ really is what brings rest, wholeness, flourishing, shalom, the existential calm that for a brief gospel-sane moments settles over you and lets you step in out of the storm of, of worksness. You see for a moment that, Christ, that in Christ you truly are invincible. The verdict really is in, nothing can touch you, you have been, he has made you his own and will never cast you out. Living out of this law-field subconscious resistance to Christ's heart, which we all tend to think we're su successfully avoiding, is deep and subtle and pervasive. It is more pervasive than, the occasion, than occasional moments of self-conscious works righteousness would indicate. Those moments of self-knowledge are indeed gifts of grace and not to be ignored, but they are only the visible tip of an invisible iceberg. They are surface symptoms. Law-ishness, of-worksness, is by its very nature undetectable because it's natural, not unnatural to us. It feels normal. Of-works is to fallen people, uh, of-works of works to fallen people is what water is to fish. So to put it in more simple terms, we are so bent on earning our salvation, following a set of rules, doing whatever we can, and even if it's just to repay God for how good he's been to us, that is still missing the point. The point is to experience God's heart for us which will take intentional effort because of how deep our desire is to earn or repay it. And like it said in here, it is deep, subtle, and pervasive. And it's deeper than we even like see and observe in ourselves. Worship team, if you want to join me, that would be great. I have seen this played out uh, to the point where it was pretty destructive in my life in the last couple years. And I'm sure you guys can relate. The last two years have been uniquely challenging. So there was a lot of things uh, for me and probably for you guys as well that came up and you're like, I didn't even know that that was in there. Um, but for me, I realized I was not experiencing God's love uh, to the depth that I knew that I needed to. Um, it just didn't feel like enough for me. And I knew and believed that there was more uh, to experience, to know about God. It wasn't just that I needed to settle for understanding that. It, there was an opportunity to experience the love of God. But because we are bent towards striving, I said, well, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to uh, do my devotionals better. I'm going to be more consistent. I'm going to serve better at church. I'm going to work harder at my job. And it was all based on what I could do. And I realized that it didn't work. That did not lead to more meaningful experiences with God. And when that didn't work, I doubted his character because I didn't understand his process. And that moment 
was a turning point for me. And it could have gone either way. I could have said, that's not who God is. I tried and it didn't work and it doesn't make sense. I'm leaving. But I held on to hope in that moment and said, there's got to be more. There has to be more of God's heart for me in this. I'm confident that there is a real felt experience of God's love that is enough for me. And that striving almost crushed me. My idols became my abilities, my title, my reputation, my relationships, because I depended on those to meet the needs that God meets. And in this season of my life, someone recommended a book to me called Invitation to Solitude and Silence on two things that I was pretty unfamiliar with. And through reading that book, I created, um, not I created, she explains uh, a system of just sitting in the presence of God without an agenda, with your thoughts, and with the Lord, and with nothing else. And one of the chapters talked about our neediness, and I realized I am so completely, absolutely needy. I have so many needs, and not a single one of them am I able to meet through people or by myself. God is the absolute and only source of my met needs. And he gives us things like relationship and creation and all of these different things that speak about who he is, but they are all an arrow to him. We don't just get to stop at a relationship with a person. That relationship says something about who God is because the goal is to experience his heart for you. When I realized how needy I was and how God is the source of all of those needs, I also realized I have nothing that he needs. Not one thing of mine does God need. And in the tension of realizing he is everything that I need and I have nothing that he needs, I found reverence, an admiration for who he is, and a respect for who he is, and in that he started dealing with my sin. That's when I figured things out. And when I say, I don't even mean figured things out, that's when I started to figure things out. We're still in process. I am still broken and sinful. I am still bent towards striving. But realizing that I have nothing that he needs takes all the pressure off trying to prove that I deserve salvation, trying to cover up whatever sin that I've done that would make me unworthy of salvation, trying to convince him of how holy I am and how much my heart is for him and how I want to please him. None of that mattered. While I was still a sinner, he died for me. When I was an enemy of God, that's when he chose me. Not because I got my act together, not because I knew the Ten Commandments since I was a kid and did my best to follow them, not because I was living a moral life. He chose me while I was his enemy. Understanding and experiencing his heart is where we find rest. And if you're concerned about a righteous life, this is where it starts. So the Israelites missed it. They struggled to find God's heart. So they settled for his rules. And that's my invitation to you guys. Keep pushing to understand God's heart. Don't settle for a moral life. You are called to live a holy life, and that starts with with resting in the presence of God. 
So I'm going to invite you guys to stand, and we are going to respond. And I just have one question for you guys to think about. And this is the question. Am I consistently experiencing God's heart for me? And I realize that there's different groups in this room. Some of us might be saying, yes, like I want to live a righteous life. I am actively trying to pursue God's will for me. I am creating space to be in his presence, listen to his voice, and be obedient. And then there's people in this room who might be thinking, I have never done that. Or I understood that at some point, but I've never experienced that. And to the person in this room that's like, I don't even know, I'm still God's enemy. I'm not trying to please God right now. This is your invitation to his heart. Not to a set of rules, not to a certain structure, looking a certain way. You are invited to experience his heart. And to the person who's like, I just want to please God, it starts and ends with rest. That is the way to God's heart, is to realize that you have nothing that he needs. You were chosen when you were his enemy. And I just want to invite you guys to respond to that in whatever way you need to. If you're standing by someone who's going to distract you, find space in this room. If you need to sit at your seat, if you need to kneel at this altar, whatever is the way that you are going to experience God's heart best, this is your invitation. And the reality is for some of you today, this might be the big pivotal turning point in the way that you experience God. And for others of you, this might be another drop in the bucket of understanding God's heart. These five minutes might just be of just a couple moments of him reminding you of who you are and who he is. And knowing God's heart comes from that consistency. So there is the big shift that he makes when we say, Lord, this is what I want. I want to live my life for you. And there's the reminder of that. And I don't know where you guys are at, but I'm going to pray for you regardless. Lord, I am so thankful that you chose someone like me, that you've chosen every single person in this room. You said every single one of us is worthy of experiencing your heart. Not just having to understand your heart or look at you from a distance. We are called to a deep, meaningful experience with a God who is completely in love with us. And you're not in love with us because of what we can do or what we've done or the things that we've avoided. You love us because we are made in your image and because you created us. And would you just help us to experience your heart in a way that makes sense to us? Thank you that you meet us where we're at. That your invitation is just to come to you. We don't have to come with the list of things that we've done for you. We don't have to come with the things that we've avoided. We get to come to you. Would you help us to show up in humility so that you can deal with us? Lord, help us to be people who push to understand and experience your heart. And Lord, when we settle for your rules, would you bring us back? Bring us back to a moment in your presence. So Lord, your presence is where everything changes.
take over all we want. You are all we need. You are our source. You are our, de- our identity, our hope. Lord, help us to find rest in you. For your yoke is easy and your burden is light. And we know that it is through resting in you that we find our reverence, our adoration for you, that we really discover who you are. And it's from that relationship, Lord, that we follow after you. And we thank you that you have called us into your family, that you have called us sons and daughters and heirs. Help us to remember that in times where we feel low or in times where we beat ourselves up or in times when we get caught up in trying to do it on our own through works. Help us to just let this be a start understanding who we are in you. Jesus, we just give you the praise. We give you all the glory and honor in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message from the Gateway Church. If you'd like to find out more about our church, such as service times, giving, and ways to get connected, visit us at thegateway.church.